Welcome to Happy Path Programming. I'm Bruce Eckel. I'm James Ward. All right. Well, Happy New Year. Welcome to Happy Path Programming. Mm -hmm. um, so you want to tell us about Winter Tech Forum, the yes. current state? So the current state of it is it's the last week in February. So that's coming up fast. And um, you go to wintertechforum.com to find out about it. Uh, we have officially 30 spots, and that's because on Friday we have the uh, cross-country ski or snowshoe out to the yurt, and there's a yurt dinner, and we have 30 spots for that. And you want to sign up soon because I have to release any unused spots um, two weeks ahead of the conference. This is just one of the fun activities we have oh, yeah. at the conference is going out to a yurt in the woods at night and mm -hmm. maybe looking at stars if it's clear. And, mm -hmm. um, uh, yeah, and have a really a nice dinner. Yeah, very nice dinner. And and, and that's all part of the um, conference fee that's taken care of. But uh, this year we only have 30 spots for that. So, I mean, if you really get desperate at the last minute and still want to come and we don't have any spots left, well, you'll you you and whoever else in that uh uh in that situation wonderful restaurants. yes we have a we have, you you can all go out and group but um yeah and yeah we we have all kinds of it's a lot of activities and it looks it looks like it's just all fun and it is but we end up talking about tech almost continuously yeah. throughout the whole thing yeah. Um, except when we get together in the rental houses and play games, then it's true. well, some good board games. Yeah, that usually distracts us from the from the tech for a while. But you'd yeah. be surprised. At, it's like well, and also the tech conversations tend to be to, to be more relaxed because we're doing the unofficial things, and so people feel more comfortable talking about this yeah. or that. So about their horrible manager or whatever <laughs> it is. Yeah, yeah, because. Yeah. Um, and we will be recording some of the sessions at least so yeah, and putting that. them up as podcasts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, give that so, a try. Yeah, again. Okay, so yeah. let's get going. So today we have with us Adam Morsky, who has... I, Adam, you have done so many amazing things. Um, I think mostly what I've seen is in the world of Scala with with libraries and, and all sorts of great stuff. So we're going to dive into some of that today. Um, so welcome, Adam. Great to have you. Great to be here. Thanks a lot for the for the invitation. Yeah, right. And we're we're talking to Adam from Warsaw, Poland. Yeah. I mean, he's from Warsaw, Poland. So <laughs> exactly. I would I would like to unless start. we are close by, it doesn't seem so. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's the, no, it's a very good internet connection. Um, I would like to start by giving you my hypothesis of how Loom works and have you correct me because it seems like you know an awful lot about that and there's still a lot of mystery to it. So here's the way I think it works. Um, it's a coroutine based system. So it's got coroutines and the problem normally with coroutines is that a compiler has to know where the suspension points are so that it can build continuations at that point and mm -hmm. you can have a safe um, suspension and resumption and also cancellation and error reporting and all that kind of stuff. So the trick that I think Loom is doing is because the Java virtual machine has, 
you know, it's, it's executing these JVM instructions, it knows where safe suspension points are between, I don't, you know, maybe special JVM instructions, maybe every JVM instruction, I don't know about that. And so it can, it can insert those without you having to explicitly put anything in the code and create, I'm, I'm sort of guessing it's creating the continuations um, dynamically, but I could be wrong about that. So am I anywhere near? Um... <laughs> no, I guess it's uh, quite close to how, the, how this works. Uh, so as far as the suspension points go, as far as I know, uh, things work very similarly as with normal threads, right? So the whole idea behind Project Loom is that the virtual threads, which I introduced as part as the first component uh, of the project, as a stable um, as a stable feature of Java. So these virtual threads should work exactly the same as normal threads, right? So we had threads in Java for, I guess, forever. You probably know of this way better well, than me. one or something. But <laughs> broken threads, I think it's safe to say. Yeah. Well, and yeah. These finally... are like, like in the Loom terminology, these would be the platform threads or the career right. threads, right? So mm -hmm. they are still there. But no, but next to them, we have the, the virtual threads. And from an API point of view, they work exactly the same. Mm -hmm. Meaning that the suspension points or the points where there's a context switch, right? Between executing one thread and, and another... Uh, they are the same in both cases, and these are the blocking operations, right? So whenever you uh, wait on a semaphore, you acquire a lock, you issue an I.O. operation, you read from a socket, and so on, right? So these are the suspension points. So there are no, like no special JVM instructions that are inserted, and uh, it's no, wait, not... Did you say there are special JVM? No, JV? they're not. No, there are no. none. Okay. As far as I'm aware, I don't think so. No, no, no. Yeah, it's, it's just, but the JVM just knows uh, the blocking. Yes. It knows what a blocking call is, essentially. Right. Well, there's a couple, like, if you go down the, there's like wrappers, of course, like in, in terms of IO and new IO and, uh, and so on. Uh, but I guess it's just a couple of constructs, like every, uh, like synchronization primitive. Uh, like every log and every semaphore and so on, boils down to calling log support park, which is a special method which actually parks the thread, right? So that's the suspension point. And so what's different in, in Loom is like the suspension points are the same. So they are quite coarse-grained, right? It's not like uh, the JVM runtime can just... Uh, uh, Suspended switch any point. context. Yeah, switch context at any point. It's only when there's a blocking operation. Ah, okay. But it can. So, but the, okay. My understanding of of the normal threads or whatever previous threads is that they were not. They were just suspending based on the the operating system. Um, it was saying, yes. oh, you've had enough time, this task, we're going to suspend you wherever. And and you're saying that, oh, well, here, the suspension points are actually detected when you when you make an identifiable blocking call. And, yes. and the JVM actually knows where that is. And it says, okay, we can suspend it at this point. So it's much more precise. Yes, well, I, I think it knows about more or less the same. 
uh, as it knew before, it's just doing different things, right? So before it was doing a full context switch, mm-hmm. meaning that it was like an operating system level context switch, which is quite expensive. It's uh, slow to do at scale. Uh, the the stack size that needs to be switched Something with the stack, big. yeah, right, and quite so big. limited, yeah, right. So with Loom, that is all optimized. So mm-hmm. the time to switch in between two two virtual threads is, is much smaller. Uh, the stack that needs to be put aside is uh, is much smaller as well. It's optimized in various ways. So right, because uh, it's just storing. I mean, it's it's. I mean, I'm I'm saying it's creating a continuation, which is just storing the things that it knows need to be stored because it can know those things. Whereas with an operating system context, which just goes, I I don't know what you're doing. I have to save and restore everything. So that's why. It's actually doing some uh, quite clever tricks. So there's a talk from JVM Language Summit from last year, which, uh, which talks about it in detail. Uh, one of the developers talks about it. So he's, I guess, the best person to talk <laughs> about such things. <laughs> the internals of how it's yeah. all implemented. Yeah, but the, uh, one of the tricks that I remember is that the first time uh, you suspend a virtual thread, so you you want to you know context switch, the full, st- uh, the full stack is put aside and another v- virtual thread is run in its place. But the second time you do it, it's only the difference... Uh, in the stack mm, uh, uh, between uh, these two blocking calls that is actually needs to be put aside, right? So that uh, over time, if you uh, block a virtual thread often enough, uh, the amount of stack that you actually need to update in your you know, memory, in, in, in your side memory is very small. So this so makes it much faster. It is doing it dynamically then. In what sense, dynamic? Some well, like dynamic analysis of the diff of the stack. Right. Yeah. So it says, okay, the first time we save everything, the second time we look at the diff and we go, oh, well, we only need to save the things that, that yes. would change. Yes. Okay, but it's doing that at runtime. Yes, yes, of course. Okay, yes. okay. Yeah, whereas Well, you lot... can't really know what's uh, going to end up being blocking, right? It's an undecidable right. problem. Sure. Whereas with um, uh, compiler level things, the compiler knows, oh, you've, you've, within this scope, you've only got these um, variables that I need to save. And so it does that analysis at compile time, whereas Loom is doing it at runtime. Right. I think like in Kotlin coroutines, how the <laughs> compiler is kind of unraveling all that into right. the state machine at, yes. at compile time. Right. Or something. Yeah, it can build that. Because right, in Kotlin, the compiler has to do a lot of things, right? It needs mm-hmm. to transform the whole program into continuation passing style, into a state machine. So that's a whole big transformation. And that's why you n- need to annotate each function as, as, as suspendable, right? So that it mm-hmm. can properly do the transformation. I don't think there's really anything that the Java compiler does regarding to virtual threads, right? It's all mm-hmm. in the JVM. So right. in that sense, it's all dynamic, yes. So because it's in the JVM, that means uh, Kotlin can use it and Scala can use it, right? Yes, yes, sure. sure and, yeah, and you, any JVM language can use it, of course. Okay, and your um, Ox library for Scala uses it? Yes. Uh, okay. Maybe give us the rundown on Ox. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so how, how Ox came to be. So it's still 
it's still mostly a research project um, coming from the fact that for a long time we've been using uh, functional effect systems in Scala. And I guess you've worked with them, you've played with them quite yeah. a lot as well, right? Well, Zio. Yeah, mostly in the uh, world of Zio. Zio, Cat's Effect, uh, Scala Z, Futures, mm -hmm. to a certain degree, fall into this as well, right? Mm -hmm. And they have some very interesting properties. Um, like they make certain things very nice. You, the code is very elegant. It's very expressible. Uh, you can uh, very elegantly define uh, concurrently running operations. You can, you know, they have fibers and so on and so on. And that's all great, right? And they have like there's referential transparency. You can do refactoring. There's a lot of nice features. There's a couple of bad features as well, right? The syntax is completely different, which people have to learn and people complain about that. The stack traces are mostly useless. Um, <laughs> and uh, so, so there are some problems with, with the approach, right? Uh, but still because there's a lot of benefits, like in the, of... in the pre-loom, in the pre-loom world, uh, I guess the benefits really outweigh the costs, uh, especially when you had to use concurrency. So now loom com comes along, right? It took some time, but, but it's finally here. Um, so now we end up having an asynchronous runtime inside the JVM. So something that uh, these libraries before implemented at the library level, now is part of the JVM, right? Mm -hmm. It's more or less the same approach that they, that they had, right? We have a pool of platform threads on top of which we run many like thousands or tens of thousands. If, well, it was fibers in Zio or in Cat's Effect and in Java, it's virtual threads. So now the question is, at least my question is, uh, once you have this asynchronous runtime in Java, is there still any merit into using the functional approach, the wrapped approach, right? Or the monadic one, that, mm -hmm. that, that would be most precise. So is it... Are there like some features of this monadic approach which uh, justify paying the cost of, uh, of the syntax overhead, of the stack traces, of the virality, and so on? And so, instead, can you just punt to the JVM's capabilities around async and virtual yes, threads yes. and just say, hey, you don't need to build your own fiber scheduler on, on top of the JVM. Just use the JVM's lightweight Exactly. Threat. The asynchronous features, are, I think, were the driving force behind actually implementing Cuts Effect, Zio, Futures, and so on, right? Mm -hmm. And as time progressed, people uh, really polished these solutions, and they uh, came to have a lot of other features that, that are very nice, like referential transparency, right? First, we had callbacks, then we had Futures, and then we had I.O. So that's like a evolution of, of, of how this uh, approach has worked. Um, but still the core problem was asynchronous, right? We wanted to have, wanted to have scalable uh, programs which can handle you know, tens of thousands of concurrent connections, not being limited by the amount of threats uh, that you, you have. So uh, just as a quick side system. note to this, it, I think in most kind of traditional um, blocking-based I.O. servers, let's say, 
you typically wouldn't want more than let's say a thousand threads and that means that right, you right. you if you've got an http connection coming in and then you've got a database connection um you're you're pretty limited on your your kind of max number of concurrent uh connections that you can have through you a given system. scaling walls and you have to change your architecture to adapt to those and the the those there was some trade-offs that that kind of put that arbitrary limit on what you can do. One of them was the context switching of these platform threads. Another one was the memory consumption of each thread because each thread needs a stack size and, and that gets allocated to every thread individually. Um, so those limitations were in some ways kind of arbitrary to the way that that blocking IO worked on the JVM kind of pre-async um, connection, you know, Netty, whether it's Netty, NIO, uh, or other ways to do async IO. Um, and then the complexity of programming for async IO led to the the history that you were talking about with yeah. futures and then IO monads and uh, fiber schedulers and all that kind of stuff that we've Yes, we've seen. exactly. So I guess the when I started my career in Java, that was like, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, uh, we were using the thread per request model. So something that we are now again revisiting, right? So each thread, <laughs> each request got its own thread and it was doing everything on it, right? And the way to scale applications, as you say, was to increase the number of threads, like there were like the Tomcat connector or something where you can put in the number of threads, right? Yeah. And yeah. this worked up to like 100, 200, maybe uh, 1K threads but that was like stretching the limits of the operating system right well and oftentimes and I, I think a lot of these systems were just sitting in wait states these connections were just waiting exactly. for something to happen mm -hmm. and so you were kind of arbitrarily gaining all that memory and everything. yeah yeah and so you were not really fully fully utilizing your your systems in the way mm -hmm. that, that well plus you could write a program that would work fine on one machine, but then put it on another machine that didn't have as much memory and it wouldn't work. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And for optimization, like the optimal solution is that you actually have near the same number of threads as your OS threads. And that's primarily due to context switching overhead. Is that is that the right way yeah, to Yeah, I guess, as, as you said, uh, both context switching overhead and memory consumption and I guess back then we didn't have as much memory as now, but the stack sizes were not much smaller, I guess. Yeah. So, so yeah, so that, that was a waste. Like some like and... GC thrashing and memory allocation yeah, overhead and exactly. some of those things come into play as well. Mm. Yeah. So it was a waste on one hand because it was a waste of resources because everybody was just waiting for the DB to come back. With <laughs> right. or, or, or something like that. And on the other hand, you had a very you hit your scaling limit very soon, right? Yeah. So people came up with the idea that we can actually do better and, you know, we can when the, we can schedule some operations and asynchronous and just wait for multiple results on one thread. Mm -hmm. And that's how async came to be, right? So, yeah, and, and as, as we said, we had like the callbacks first, then the callback hell was bad. <laughs> so people came up with futures in many languages, like not only mm -hmm. Java and Scala, right? So yeah. Yeah, I guess lots JavaScript. Of lots is... of different future implementations out yeah. there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well also in... that the constraints that we had, I would say, because you couldn't just do a thread per request uh, model, 
um, that it made your programming more complicated and more difficult to maintain. Exactly. Yes. Okay. And, yes, but and it allowed scaling, right? Yes, yes. and then no scaling moments. again. Yeah. Yeah. So that's uh, that's exactly the premise uh, of the problem that that Loom tries to solve, right? They mm -hmm. want to make uh, this simple again. So they want mm -hmm. to get rid. I guess there's like three main motivational factors. Uh, that they want to get rid of and the Java, well, they, of course, they focus on the Java ecosystem. Uh, but even in Java, if you work with futures or with reactive ex extensions, uh, the syntax is just, well, maybe especially in Java, the syntax is just ugly if you have to yeah. do flat maps or things like that. Yeah. Uh, so I have another question. Um, what uh, do you get any parallelism benefits? Like if you have you know, you have multiple tasks running and you're just like, is it going to take all of your cores and distribute them across these tasks and stuff like that? Is there any of that there or is this strictly IO bound issues? So if you want to improve performance of your code, it's with, with Loom, it will be mostly visible in blocking okay. uh, operations. So if you have CPU intensive code, no, that won't improve. Like you can, of course, create as many virtual threads as there are cores, but it's usually, you know, 8, 16, 24, you can as well, as well create platform threads for that. So it's mm -hmm. not such a big difference, right? So virtual threads matter once you have a thousand of them or 10,000, mm -hmm. right? So, so no, so, so this focuses on like, uh, I guess, a more web app, type scenario or like a business application, how just, do you call it? Or just where IO you, in general. IO in general, yes. Yeah. Yes, right. yes. Where you, you have some incoming connections, you do some database work, you go to Kafka, you go to a web service, WebSockets, and so on. Yeah. Yeah, WebSockets are definitely an interesting example where a lot of times WebSockets are just idle and yeah. you don't want to like have thread per connection, thread per platform, uh, platform thread per connection, because that then your WebSocket server doesn't scale. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes, mm -hmm. it is. Uh, by the way, for WebSockets, I guess actors are a very elegant solution, but that's mm. like a completely different topic. But <laughs> the actors are also uh, quite, I guess, a similar uh, answer, um, maybe a bit evolved answer comparing to the future approach to, to, to exactly the same problem, right? Yeah. You want to scale. And, well, right, because an actor to the rest, of, to, to, when you're inside of an actor, the rest of the world looks like I.O., even though you're staying within the, you know, you're inside the program, you're not going outside of the chip, but the other actor you send a message to and then you're, you know, waiting on a result or whatever. So yeah, is that a reasonable yeah. Uh, yeah, way? Yeah, this as well. Uh, but also the fact that you are multiplexing many actors mm -hmm. to run on a single platform thread, right? We are, mm -hmm. You are just exchanging which actor runs at a given time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's very similar to how fibers work. That's similar to mm -hmm. how virtual threads work. Or coroutines and Kotlin, it's the same thing. It's like the mapping of many virtual things to a few physical things. Right. So are there is, well, first of all, is, is, is actors any part of Ox or have you been seeing, are there ah, actors? Okay. Yeah. Going back to Ox because we started yeah. on that. Yeah. yeah so, uh, so the, like the research question, let's say my research question is once you take away, well, well, once, sorry, once you have the 
uh, asynchronous runtime inside the JVM, um, is it still uh, worthwhile using the functional effects approach, right? So I tried recreating some of the um, high-level concurrency operators that you get with the functional effects systems in a direct style. So direct style, I guess, is the the name for the uh, blocking style approach, right? Where you just you write, write your code, code as if directly. it's synchronous. Yes, yes, um, but it's actually not. <laughs> In, in terms well, of its execution, it depends how what at what level you, you look at it, right? Yeah, it is blocking if you look like from a source code level, mm. uh, but of course, if you look at what's actually happening underneath at the VM level, it stops to be blocking. But that's hidden from you. Like your code looks as if uh, if it's just doing a series of blocking calls, and you don't really have to worry about where these operations are going to get scheduled, right? Yeah. So that's all handled by the JVM. So instead of so, having to to use a mon monad with a flat map to sequence things together, you instead just sequence in direct style in your code, but you underneath the covers because of the JVM's uh, async capabilities with Loom, it all gets kind of uh, unraveled into the the more efficient way to execute those those operations right uh, yes uh, exactly so so one component of ox are these high level concurrent operators like racing to computations or running to computations in parallel or doing some uh, collection operations in parallel and that all turns out very nice uh, because partly because of scala's flexible syntax partly because of what loom gives so mm -hmm. that's one part. And another part is that, well, when we go back actually to the blocking style concurrency, um, it's like if you take a look at the experiences of people doing concurrence in a blocking way uh, in the old style uh, threads, it's not that safe, right? It's very easy to get into a deadlock. It's very easy to get into a race condition. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be the same if you are using virtual threads as well, right? So these problems don't go away. So if mm -hmm. you just try to program using locks and semaphores and threads which can run arbitrary, uh, arbitrarily, you will get into the same problems, right? Mm -hmm. So we probably don't want to go back into that world. So we probably want to look for something better. And that's the second component of Ox, which is uh, also explored by Java, but in a slightly different syntax. And that's structured concurrency. So structured mm -hmm. concurrency is something that I think originated in Python and yes. was popularized by Python. So I think the term actually was first used by a guy who worked on zero MQ, huh. you know, the project. So I guess it's yeah. more like C, huh. uh, but then there was a Python library and there's a very popular uh, blog post, uh, go considered harmful. Go yeah, statement considered harmful, yes. Yeah. And he created a library, and I was initially saying, oh, well, that's the one to use. But then it turns out that all of those features <clears throat> have been incorporated into the Python standard library's concurrency. Which I guess simply shows that it was the right yes. <laughs> answer to, the, to, mm -hmm. to these problems, right? Yeah. Um, so and to buy... Then we, 
so the pitch on this is that by using these higher level abstractions um, lumped into the concept of structured concurrency, we can more easily avoid deadlocks and race conditions and that sort of thing when we're writing concurrent code. Yes, yes, exactly. So I think the idea is still to avoid using locks, to avoid using semaphores and so on, if you can. Well, maybe some of us are good for like rate limiting, but logs are especially bad when it comes to, to programming. So I, I guess you would still want to avoid it. So we need to build some other some other tools to still do concurrency. Like there's certain things that you can do on the high level, like probably like maybe 95 of your needs will be satisfied with race and power. So racing to computations or running yeah. them in parallel, but the 5% still needs to be catered for, right? So, so that's when you can actually um, create scopes where you can run threads on your own. So that's one thing. And then you want to communicate between these threads. So for communicating between these threads, Ox proposes channels. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's like the... Communicating sequential process model. Uh, yes, yes, kind mm -hmm. of. So that's also inspired by Go. Uh, I think Go might not be a language which brought a lot of innovation in terms of features, <laughs> let's say. No. Uh, but I think it did show that uh, the channels model is actually quite useful and people like it and it's used successfully in many applications. So maybe we can, we can learn from that and actually try using it in both in Scala and in Java. So quick side note on this, um, you, uh, thank you, you contributed the Ox version of the Easy Racer um, client, which is the, a little... Oh, yeah, you know, that's a very playground. interesting project, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so a little playground for structured concurrency. And the Ox one is the, the most concise and expressive out of all of them. Um, and, and I'll um, someday, someday have a blog post that goes into all the details of that. But uh, it really makes Ox's programming model for, for structured concurrency, those high-level things, really shine. But one little interesting side note is when I was building the Rust version with, with Bruce and else was helping, I was, that was at the Rust Summit or something like that. Um, one, so back, this is going to loop back around to channels because I think what you're highlighting is that there's times where the, the race and, and collect all power or whatever it's called, like the ability to do multiple operations in parallel through structure, structure concurrency. There are cases where that model, uh, the 5% where that model doesn't fit a particular need. And when we were building the Rust version of this, we discovered that the Rust race is a macro. Uh, this is the, the structure concurrency race is a macro and it only takes two. You can only race two things. And as you, you know, from easy racer, there's oh, yeah, I remember a few from use the, cases from podcast. Yeah. where you, yeah. where you have to do race more than two things. And so we had to find a different route to do the race. And we ended up using the channels in mm. rust to implement that uh, our own race, essentially that could support more than one. And so, so am I understanding this correctly, that channels in some ways, the, the existence for it in, in Ox is to give you the escape hatch when the higher level structured concurrency APIs don't, don't fit what you need. Um, yes and no. <laughs> so <laughs> um, I guess for, for, for example, for implementing race, you would just create a scope. Uh, so a scope is a syntactical construct which delimits uh, the lifetime of threads. So that's like the central idea behind structural stru yes. structured concurrency, right? So that the structure of the code 
determines how long your threads live. So mm -hmm. this mm -hmm. simply this makes it easier to understand your code. And that's uh, the analog of of what in the ghost go statement considered harmful that's the analog nursery. of he called it nursery, yeah well he right? called it a nursery but basically the analog of us going from uh, random code to code that's only using functions so the function scope and the yeah. concurrency scope mm -hmm. yeah yeah so uh, so in the if you would try to implement raising multiple computations like a list of functions let's say you would simply create a scope. You would uh, fork uh, n and um, and threads and just wait for n of them to complete, right? Mm. Um, and you could. No, and I think there was, in our Rust implementation, there wasn't the ability to do this arbitrarily and get the get the single result out and cancel all the losers. And right, maybe that's the why we, that, maybe that's why we needed the mm -hmm. the channel was for that kind of the 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 propagating that information back because I think right. cancellation is a very interesting topic which yes. is actually a bit of a pain point mm -hmm. but yeah let's finish on channels yeah, first right. maybe I can get back <laughs> to that derailing uh, so yeah so channels they can definitely be used for that another uh, area which I'm exploring with channels is um, there's quite a lot of very elegant and very expressive libraries for reactive streams Mm. In the, in Scala and in Java, like Akka streams, FS2, Zio streams, and you can do really nice things with them. Like huh. if you write the code, it reads very nicely. I think it's easy to understand, easy to maintain, and so on. So all the properties the that becomes, you are interested in. The channel so becomes now, like yes, the now primitive. the question is like, but 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 they use uh, they rely on the functional effect systems like um, IO, like Cat's effect or Zio, or on futures, right? So what would be so now the question is what would be the equivalent of such a reactive streaming library in the world of loom mm. right since we have a blocking so since we can now block freely so mm. channels are kind of an exploration in that area as well uh, so the the channels in ox uh, apart from having like simple send and receive operations and you can also do selects you can select from multiple channels like in go but you also get those high-level operations, like you, you get a map, uh, you get a concurrent map where you can process several elements in parallel, you get like filter, group by, so all these streaming op op Starts operators. Starts to look similar to the streaming API. Exactly, you, yes. You get in and, some of the functional effects. okay, you're saying that these are part of channels that you have these operations? Yeah. And, so and the channel would be like the stream, right? You can transform the channel. Okay. Uh, a map is a very nice, simple example. If you want to map a function over a channel, the function can be potentially blocking, right? So mm -hmm. what you do is you start a virtual thread, which receives from the channel, applies the function to each element, and sends <clears throat> the results to a new channel, which is returned to the user. And uh, that way you can create a pipeline of transforming elements each transformation would start usually a virtual thread. So that's, uh, of course, imposes some cost. Um, but but again, it's like an exploration. It's not like anything that's done. The, hmm. More like a proof of concept. Yeah. So are you, are, did you also say that the channel incorporates the reactive throttling 
into it? Like back pressure. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, the back pressure is natural because uh-huh. it depends. So the channels can be buffered or unbuffered, right? The maxim, the idea in back pressuring uh, things is to put a bound of the amount of memory that your pipeline can use, mm. right? Mm-hmm. So here the bound is naturally the sum of all the buffers of the channels, mm. right? If if you want to send to a channel that's full, you will simply block. So the virtual thread will block. If it will block, it won't receive further elements from the upstream. So uh, if the downstream isn't consuming uh, things, uh, you know the buffers will fill up and everything will block in the sense of blocking virtual threads, which is allowed, right? Because yeah. we are on the loom. Yeah. So yes, there is back pressure. So it almost sounds like you're you're sort of being drawn to saying, okay, rather than the very simple channels that Go has, let's put a whole bunch of capabilities. All the higher level stream operations on on top of the channels. Yeah, and everything into your basic channel in Aux, and then that might, I don't know, produce just much easier code to... Well, it has two faces. On one hand, you have these high-level operations, which make creating pipelines very nice. That's a good thing, right? And another good thing is that if you want to have a custom transformation stage, that's quite easy. You you just you have the receive operation on the channel, and you can just do anything with it, mm-hmm. right? Um, so creating custom transformation stages in things like ACA streams uh, is quite complex. Mm-hmm. It's doable, but it's not like... Yeah. Easy or anything, right? Especially here if they're just... <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's here. So here you can just receive from the channel, do some transformations and send it further, right? So that's a men, uh, in, like in a mental model, that's quite simple. But there's a downside as well. So uh, because we don't build the description of the whole processing pipeline up front, we don't really have a lot of uh, opportunities for for optimization, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, it it might be slower. Like mm-hmm. I didn't really do any tests because I'm still at a much earlier stage. Uh, but for example, like each transformation stage gets its own virtual thread, right? Mm-hmm. That might not exa- always make sense. It might so make sense to fuse a... some of those. Um, so it might be slower than... It might not be optimal. So if you have a uh, a channel and you're doing a map and then you're doing another map, there's some overhead to those two consecutive yeah. maps. That whereas... would that would correspond to two async barriers in ACA streams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, but if you, I mean, anytime you introduce a mechanism, it might slow it down. But the benefit of that mechanism could be you know huge in many other ways and it would be worth the the cost yeah could be could be like uh, map is also not the perfect example because it might there's also a variant of map which actually doesn't create an async barrier uh, but many other operators uh, don't 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 have uh, these variants Uh, but uh, yeah i guess it it is uh, quite an interesting research uh, path we are now working on actually improving the performance of channels uh, to like the raw channels. Uh, we don't get to the operators yet. Yeah. And that took a, a couple of months of research. You um, said we. 
Yeah, yeah, we, yeah. So it's you and and other people, <laughs> not just it's you mostly on, me. On your nights uh, and weekends. Well, I'm saying we because uh, we have like a small open source research department at our company. Mm. Um, there's like two people full time, and there's also other people working on various of our open source projects uh, when they are and when they don't when when they are not on a project currently because I'm working at a consulting company. Mm-hmm. So, so we have like a team that's supporting our open source initiatives, like Ox, uh, like Tapir, and others. Nice. So, um, there's so Ox has the just to summarize, it's based on Loom. It has structured concurrency that is built on top of the JP whatever uh, in Java, the, the the Java JP for structured concurrency. Yeah, uh, the, Java, uh, the Java JEP, I guess, GEP, right? Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Java has a JEP for structured concurrency. Um, but I think it's uh, the, we are using it uh, behind, the, be, behind the scenes uh, because it's quite low level. Like it's mm. very easy to write incorrect code, which will just throw a structure violation exception at runtime. Yeah. So uh, that's something that we fix in Ox. Um, and so you using get a nice a, high-level API to just say, race these things, yes. and you it's don't have to think about It's not as flexible as the Java version, of course, but it's much safer to use, right? Yeah. So you don't, I think there's like three or four invocations uh, that you have to do in the correct order in, in the Java version to get uh, things like power work yeah. incorrectly and it takes multiple lines yeah. uh, in 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 ox even if you don't use the high level method it's still much simpler and it's much harder to make a mistake yeah um and then you also use scoped values another jp and i'm curious i don't know much about scope values maybe you could give us a quick summary of what that is and how ox uses scope values um, okay, so uh, we don't really use them much. Uh, it's just that we provide a, a wrapper for the for the Java version so that it's usable in 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 the Scala code. One of the pain points, <clears throat> I think, of functional effect systems like Cat's Effect and like Zio is their support for like fiber locals, right? Mm-hmm. So a canonical example is you have a correlation ID that you receive from an incoming. A web request and you want to thread it through all the way down to your downstream web service call or whatever, right? Yeah. And you don't want to add an additional parameter like call ID or correlation ID to every method. It would be just painful. Yeah. So you, 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 you want to put it in like a com, uh, request local that's you know, automatically attached to the whole call tree coming out from this request, right? And it's actually very hard to do uh, in cat's effect it's possible but once you you know then you go to a database and you change the monad and then it's broken basically <laughs> uh, with zio it's uh, it's a bit it's better but it's hard as well uh, so um, that's why i looked at um, uh, at these local values which uh, i think is very important to have them so that people actually can use them. But our wrapper in Ox is very thin on top of what Java provides. Okay. And and really, this is just about a fiber local or, or um, an alternative. Yeah, that's about it. So in, in the virtual yeah. thread world. Yeah, and, it's like and a thread local, on. but working uh, better with, with, uh, with virtual threads. Mm-hmm. It's not as mutable, you might say, right? Yeah. <laughs>
Nice. So there's only a certain scope in which you send in which you set a value, which also works nicely with the concept of structured concurrency. That mm. the structure of the code determines like how uh, how your threads behave. So, what um, one of my under current understandings of uh, structured concurrency is that it needs to be able to support um, uh, never well reporting errors without ever losing any of them and cancellation. So, yeah. and you're supporting those in Ox, I assume? Yeah, so uh, a very good question. Um, so again, coming back to the original problem, right? Once we have an async runtime in the JVM, should we still use functional effects systems? And one of the, there's a couple of reasons why you why you might want to still use them. Um, and one of them is error handling and cancellation. So <clears throat> cancellation is... Uh, mm, so in Java, you have to rely on interrupted uh, exception, right? On, in, on, in, on interruptions. We know they are not perfect. Uh, yes. People have researched why they don't work in many ways, right? It's very easy to actually eat an interrupted exception, just catch an exception and log it. And then your thread will continue happily, uh, happily, <laughs> even though it should finish working because the supervisor decided so or whatever. So it requires quite a lot of discipline to actually implement um, interruption correctly um, in in the Java. And the same carries over to Ox. The same carries over to Scala code using Loom. Right? If you want to have interruptions, uh, you just need to keep this discipline of behaving correctly when you get an, inter an, an, an interrupted exception. And that's, by the way, the, you know, the way racing works, for example, right? If you race to computations, you want to interrupt the losing one and you interrupt it by calling thread interrupt. And Interesting, yeah. Um, the exception is injected over there and it needs to be properly terminated, right? So, so just as a quick example of this, in, in the easy racer, there it's doing a race and the the races are against HTTP requests. And so you're using STTP for HTTP, uh, the HTTP mm -hmm. client in this in this case. And so is what you're saying is that that STTP library had to correctly implement checking for interruption uh in STTP, well, no, okay, or? no, not going that far. Like uh, it, uh, it can't obstruct. So mm -hmm. uh, it just needs to make sure that there's not uh, there's no catch exception and log the exception, which would mm -hmm. simply not propagate the interrupted exception, right? Okay. Uh, so um, if we are using an STTP or an, an other library, you are you are doing a blocking call. If it's interrupted, it will throw an interrupted exception. So the libraries should mostly just propagate the exception up to the caller. Okay. Okay. And if they do it, that's fine. Right? But uh, you still need to know if they don't do something. Like maybe they catch all exceptions and convert them to something and so on, mm -hmm. which would break things, right? Yeah. yeah. So that's a downside, right? In the functional effect systems, that's implemented much more nicely. Um, the interruptions or the cancellation is out is like an uh, out uh, how do you say it mm, not out of bounds but uh, there's like a special channel implemented in the runtime essentially yeah uh, yes exactly it doesn't rely on in injecting exceptions 
uh, so it's you could say it's done in the proper way over mm -hmm. there right a, a more uh, a safer more reliable way yeah yes yes which is very hard to uh, implement in java right now given all the history of java and so on yeah. Yeah. baggage right. i think we can call it <laughs> exactly yeah. so um, that's something if you decide to go the direct style route you just need to be aware of it and you know maintain discipline if you catch an exception just in scala this amounts to catching a non-fatal exceptions uh, which uh, would make interrupted exception not being caught in java it's a bit more tricky because they are not as flexible but possible as well hmm. so uh, cancellation was one thing and the other was error handling yeah. yes um I guess that's still an open question. I'm not sure how to best do error handling. I'm not sure anybody knows how to do error <laughs> handling, really. <laughs> There's a lot of ideas, right? We have checked exceptions in Java, but I think most people agree that they are a failed experiment. Yeah. Right? Now the question is, why are they a failed ex experiment? Yes. <laughs> why so do you know the answer <laughs> no i don't because <laughs> they don't compose <laughs> well they don't compose we yeah we were actually just discussing this last night in our uh, book development group and we came up with well mostly james came up with the idea that oh there's a contract like whenever you're trying to compose things to to compose them effectively you need to have a complete contract um, you know, it's it's like putting Legos together and the contract is, you know, one has the little pegs and one mm -hmm. has the little holes. And if you don't meet that contract, you can't compose them. And um, with exceptions, there's there's some things that are implicit that are not... With well, not unchecked exceptions. Yeah, well, right. And, a che and checked exceptions were an attempt to... Establish a contract. To, to create that contract, but they weren't... Um, I don't know. I guess maybe there's there's in a there's a way to escape them or whatever, and so that basically broke the whole system. If you if you can if you can opt out of it, then that's not yeah, really a contract. If you try to Google it, there's a very interesting answer or collection of answers on Stack Overflow to the to exactly this question. Hmm. And one of the answers, I think, is going in the direction that you mentioned that. We have unchecked exceptions, which are the real exceptions. And they, mm -hmm. I guess they are quite popular in all languages, right? Panics, whatever. Something goes very wrong. There's a bug. You, you throw an exception. And yeah, there's no way to recover. Yeah, exactly. And then there's checked exceptions. So uh, there's one answer that suggests that they aren't really exceptions. It's just syntax for either's, mm -hmm. essentially, yeah. right? Uh, in Scala, you can write uh, that uh, you return either some kind of error or something, right? In Java, you have this special syntax with throws, but essentially it's the same thing, mm. right? You need to uh, handle the exact form of whatever the uh, the errors are returned by the method in the caller, right? So the mm. caller is fully aware of the errors that the callee... Yeah. Um, well, plus you can always break the contract by throwing a null pointer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, seriously, if you think of it in terms of contracts, it's like, oh, there's always a way to get out of the contract. And it's like, right, well, but that would be the really... unchecked exception, right? That would be the yeah. bug in the code. Right, right, yeah. right. So um, that's really interesting. So there's oh, other I... answers over there, right? That they are not polymorphic, right? The mm -hmm. whole, um, if you try to run in Java, you know, submit something to a thread pool or run a thread, you sometimes you get a runnable, sometimes you get a callable which 
one doesn't allow you to throw exceptions and the other throws exception. Uh, then lambdas can't throw exceptions, right? So right, it's a yeah. mess, right? Yeah. So they are not. Mm -hmm. So the lack of polymorphism might be a strong indicator of why checked exceptions actually failed in Java. Uh, but there's also a lot of other possibilities, mm -hmm. right? So um, in Scala, we have a couple of answers. We have unchecked exceptions. Uh, some people like using either's, uh, which are very specific. Some people like using try, right? There's also the attempt to do something similar, I guess, as in Rust, uh, to introduce a result type. Which, which is really a monad. From... Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, but with syntax to, un to un unwrap right. it. You, yeah. So there's a couple of attempts to, I guess, do it. There's also an attempt to do checked exceptions in Scala, but I think it's huh. abandoned now. It was using capabilities, so it's a bit better than the same because you don't have to write like specialized higher order functions for uh, for yeah. each variant, uh, like which would support um, methods which throw exceptions and not. Are you referring to so, the Caprese? project or is this something different that's like uh, i think uh, something a bit before caprese okay. uh, it was the work leading to the project i guess yeah but okay. as far as i know i think the the checked exceptions in scala are abandoned uh, in favor of some other work probably yeah. um, mm -hmm. so in developing Ox, that so in ox you need some way to know that a task failed so for example a race um you you are racing two things. One thing is going to produce an error. You want that to be the loser. And so yeah. the, the way that like Zio does it is it, it has the error channel that you would, you would put that in. But in, in Ox, you just went with, with unchecked exceptions as the, yes, as so far. Mechanism. Yes. I'm not 100% convinced yet. It's the right way to go. Uh, actually, we, we we have two approaches, <laughs> kind of mixed. Uh, uh, when we have the concurrence operators, we, we rely on exceptions, but we also have, we also have a retry API uh, for resilience because that's also in the scope of the library. And there we have variants for uh, either's, for tries, and for exceptions. Uh -huh. So we actually allow users to choose. So I'm not if I'm not sure if it's the best way to go and. We, I would love to, you know, settle on one approach to error handling, but we simply didn't come up with it yet. So yeah. that's something that we want to develop in the future. We we discovered something interesting last night that I didn't know about Zio, but it's that uh, if you in on a Zio, you can call a retry. A number of different APIs for that, but it actually uses um, implicit evidence to to verify that you actually have, your Zio has an error in the error channel mm -hmm. or you, the compiler won't let you call retry. And I thought that was a cool way as we were talking about like contracts and, mm -hmm. and the how, how when you have a contract, it allows you to um, know things when you're composing stuff together. And that was a cool example of Zio's ability to, to have a contract of, around the air channel and, and have compilers and, if you... And enforce to, that contract at other places. That, yeah. I do really like that what, what you pointed out about exceptions because you often see people saying, okay, so there's two kinds of exceptions. There's recoverable and unrecoverable. And that has always... It's yeah. It's always bothered me a little bit, but then when 
you know, what you read pointed out that, well, these are really two different things. Mm -hmm. You know, a quote unquote real exception is the unrecoverable kind. And then the other thing is what you're, you know, it's an error that you're supposed to handle. Mm -hmm. And, and what I really like Russ's way of just saying, like anything potentially recoverable is a result and yes. anything unrecoverable is a panic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I guess yeah. that's not far away from the Zio approach as well, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. Uh, I guess Zio is really nice when it comes to error handling and it gets a lot of things right. So mm-hmm. again, the question is like, when you want, uh, if, you are, if you are using Zio, right, you get cancellation, which is principled. You get error handling, which is very well done, but you get the syntax, you get the stack traces, and you also get the vir- virality. So, yeah. you know, you have to balance it out. Yeah. In the yeah. end. Yeah. It's interesting. Well, in in the Python uh, structured concurrency, um, it allows cancellation because uh, at the determined suspension points, it knows enough, and it and it actually performs. It's those are safe points to perform cancellation, and so what so you can. It, the cancellation is built in and the error reporting is also built in because it knows those safe suspension points. And I don't know if that could be something that would help. Well, yeah, these safe not... suspension points would be like whenever you block, right? Which yes. shouldn't be anywhere really mm-hmm. because you don't know. Um, so I don't think we'll be able to take de- to detect that. So I think we will have to live with cancellation as it comes in uh, Java. Uh, meaning interrupt exception, but I think we might be able to come up with something nicer for er- for error handling. Not sure if it's going to be unchecked exceptions. I ho- I'm hoping it's going to be something better, at least for people who really care about what kind of errors. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. I think maybe something result like. Well, I don't know. It's like probably another topic for longer re- yeah. for longer research but it's definitely something that we need to work on and we need to you know research and develop so that's an open yeah. question still so if you have a few minutes i want to talk a little bit about your benchmark um that you did recently sure. with <laughs> with loom and and coroutines um can you give us just the rundown on on what your benchmark was was doing and what you discovered Sure. So, so the the original cause for doing these benchmarks is that I wrote like a maybe not very simple but a straightforward implementation of channels in Ox um, with support of selects, where you can select exactly one um, value to receive from a, from exactly one channel, and then I ran some Kafka code with it and so on just to see how you know it feels to program with it, and it worked, but it was really slow. So, <laughs> you know, it was a proof of concept and the concept was proved, but it was slow. So then I uh, started, I got interested into looking at how this can, can this be made Why faster. Why was it slow? Yeah, yeah. And how can you make it faster? Yes, yes. So I, I, uh, I arrived at Kotlin channels, which uh, they have the same concept. And they also arrived at the same conclusion that channels might be a good idea to communicate between coroutines in their case and that that run concurrently and they also support selects and so on so so there's like a paper into how they implemented this in kotlin and and it's uh, transferable to uh, to java as well and but before doing that before 
doing the whole implementation. I just wanted to see if using virtual threads, the approach makes sense at all, right? So I started with a benchmark where um, I had um, a number. Uh, I wanted to pass, I guess, 10 million values from one thread to another through some medium, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, in one case, it might be an aux channel. In other case, I also looked at Kotlin, how fast uh, using their channels this happened. Uh, I was looking at synchronous queue in, in Java, at array blocking queue, um, and some hand-rolled implementations, right? So that was the idea of, of the benchmark. Um, like how quickly can you pass 10 million values from one thread to another and, yes. and given yes. different implementations. Of, uh, yeah, and it was done in a rendezvous way, meaning that the two threads have to meet to exchange the values, right? So there's no buffer or anything. Uh, you send on one uh, thread and the other thread must call receive and the resend won't unblock until the receive is there, right? Okay. So they, they, they have to meet and exchange the value. Mm -hmm. Uh, so that was like the limitation. Mm -hmm. uh, and it turns out like Kotlin is really fast and uh, the coroutines implementation there is really performant. Mm, and it turned out to be the fastest among the contenders. Yeah. Um, do you remember uh, the, the research paper that, that that was based on? I haven't read it, but I'll see if I can find it and put it in the, yeah, the show it's, notes because it's an interesting one. Uh, <laughs> You've got it printed out. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right I prefer re reading printed stuff. Fast and scalable channels in Kotlin coroutines. Awesome. Yeah, very awesome. nice paper, by, by the way, and a very nice Im implementation. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, uh, but there's a catch. So I did the micro benchmark, and it turned out that Kotlin is the fastest. And then if you do some performance optimizations in the Java version, like uh, Synchronous queue was really slow. There's a thing called Exchanger in Java, which was much huh. faster. A bit different use case, but worked for the benchmark. And then if you did some uh, code, some custom code, which implemented this exact scenario, you can also get very good performance, very close to the Kotlin one. Mm -hmm. So this looked promising, right? The virtual threads can actually do it. Mm -hmm. um, but then, uh, yeah, and I implemented this in uh i implemented this paper in the java uh, uh -huh. so that's called jocks like java ox but it's only the channels uh, implementation sure huh. uh, yeah and in these micro benchmarks like it's very fast and everything uh, but the catch is that uh, then i posted it on reddit and ron ron pressler came uh, he's the <laughs> one of the members of the loom team who actually uh -huh. implemented this and he says that, you know, micro benchmarks sh should be ignored unless you're a JVM tuning expert, which I'm not. <laughs> um, and that actually, the, you know, the Java version is faster uh, huh. than oh. the Kotlin one. That's fine. But still, like if you implement the paper and you do the micro benchmark, uh, you get really good results in under Java and, and virtual threads, but still Kotlin is a bit faster, right? Um, well, so I implemented some benchmarks, which weren't micro benchmarks, but were running things at scale. So uh, in the latest benchmark I've done, I have 10K uh, threads, and now you have to pass a value from the first thread to, 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 to the last one, right? So they do it like in sequence. So there's a lot okay. of concurrent work going yeah. on. And if you Wait, run this... you're saying you pass the value through all 10,000 threads? Yeah. Ah. Yeah. 
So that's, uh, you know, in the middle of the benchmark, there's like a lot of things happening, right? Because they sure. all work at the same time. Um, and this indeed proved Ron to be correct. Uh, maybe not entirely, but mostly. Uh, in the virtual threads were really efficient at, at they are, Well, at the Kotlin is still way. faster, though. Kotlin is still faster, uh, but now the my implementation of channels is about the same performance as Java's synchronous queue. So okay. the difference, there was a huge difference in the micro benchmark comparing the synchronous queue uh, to like custom code. Uh, but if you run at scale, it's uh, uh, this difference disappears. Kotlin uh -huh. is still a bit faster, but they are both really, really fast. Mm -hmm. So both the channels, the Java concurrent, uh, data structures and Kotlin. Huh. So in, in Ox, will you rebuild the channel implementation on top of Jocks? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the plan. Uh, so uh, you might wonder, like, what's the benefit of actually having channels since they are comparable in performance to a synchronous queue? But there's some very good reasons. First of all, a channel is completable, meaning you can actually say normal elements will be sent to this channel or then this channel is in an error. So mm. there was an error processing, right? So you close the channel, not something you can do with the queue. So that's right. one thing. And the second thing is that it supports selects. So mm -hmm. you can select exactly one value from a number of channels to receive or to send. Okay. Yeah. So that's this, this enables the Go style programming. Uh, yeah. At performance levels, which are, I can now say, the same as uh, Java's, yeah. all costing nice. smallest. So uh, would it ever make sense once you kind of flesh Ox out to make a Kotlin version of it? I you could, I guess you could call it Cox, but I don't know how that would, <laughs> that would go over. But... No, the Kotlin version is out there. Oh, so, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all, so the, the, the paper that I'm basing on is describing an improved implementation of tunnels in Kotlin. And they are using coroutines, of course. I'm using uh. uh, I'm using virtual threads, so the code is a bit different uh, mm -hmm. at the very low level where we actually have to suspend, right? So they use coroutines. Uh, it's all coroutine based. Mm -hmm. I'm just using uh, at a very low level lock support of Park, which blocks mm -hmm. the thread. But those but, are channels, is it? Yeah not the whole ox uh, architecture. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, okay. Those are channels. Well, they have their their own approach to structured concurrency. So, okay. so, so they, could, they, they, it's, it's, it's a bit different, of course, in terms of the API. Uh, but yeah, it works there and it works really nicely. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so yeah, Kot, mm. Kot, uh, Kotlin is definitely a very good source of inspiration here. Mm. Nice. Cool. Well, that was super educational. Do you have any anything else you want to add or, or cover? Uh, well, I would love to join the, your conference one day. It really sounds oh, great. Oh, yeah, we'd love to Not have Not this you. year, unfortunately, yeah. but maybe next one. Okay. Oh, yeah. All right. We'll get you here next year. That would be Yeah, I'm, be I'm following it for a number of years, and I always wanted to, uh, to come there. Oh, that's a long so, trip. It's so, a long trip. It is a long trip, but... <laughs> Awesome. I've done it a, a, a couple of times. It's okay. survivable. Yeah. Oh yeah, no, it's a good, it's a good place to go. Well, you've been in Europe as well. It's the same trip. Oh yeah. In, in, oh, of course. Re yeah. In the I reverse. Mean, the whole, <laughs> whole trip and the jet lag and everything. But this is a, 
I, I find that the, that's mitigated a lot if you're going to a really comfortable place. And we like to think of Crested Butte as a very comfortable place to show up. And the conference itself is very, very welcoming and friendly and engaging. So, Awesome. Well, Adam, thank you so much for spending your Friday evening with us. I really appreciate all yeah. of your, your amazing open source work that you do. And, oh, yeah. and thank you. Um, yeah. And that thank you for the podcast. It's really great. Oh, I thank you. love listening to it. So it's really yeah. uh, good that you guys are doing it. Yeah, this awesome. has been a super useful conversation for me. Yeah. Awesome. Bringing a lot of things together. So thank you very much. Thanks, Adam. Okay. Bye. Thank you.